On this epic episode of Starpod Trek, we consider the contents of Starlog Magazine in issues 67 and 68 from 1983. Bert Bruce discusses the fan who molded himself. Lou, Rich, and Max discuss Harve Bennett's entry into Star Trek. Bob Turner and Kelly Casto consider the screenwriter Jack Sword's contribution to the Wrath of Khan. Plus, the Dragon Con Parade. And more on this episode of Star Pod Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hoorah, tally ho. Hey, hello, Georgia Peach. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and watched Star Trek reruns when it was on syndication. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what it was like to be a Trekkie years ago. But we leave the non-Trek-related content to our other podcast, Starpod Log. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows, we might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app, and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We are on tour. You can meet us at the following events and conventions. It's coming up. We are excited to be once again presenting as professional guests on the Trek Trek at DragonCon. In Atlanta, Georgia, this coming Labor Day weekend, it's just upon us. What are you excited about most about this Dragon Con? Especially the Trek Track, which is essentially a Star Trek convention within a convention. Yeah, I'm excited about everything. Uh, doing the Trek Track and doing the parade and seeing all our friends. All the panels. I mean, it is so exciting. Let's just talk about the Trek-related guests that will be attending this year. Let's just go straight down the line. Star Trek science consultant. Dr. Muhammad Noor. We love Dr. Noor's panels. You get so much insight into real-world science that, that coincides with Trek. Yeah, he's a, consi- a science consultant uh, for, for the biology of the new Trek shows. And he's a great guy. I mean, he's really fun. We've spoken to him before. His book, Live Long and Evolve, is a must for every Star Trek fan's library. We have it, and we love it. Speaking of books, what Star Trek authors will be there? Larry Niven, Keith R. DeCandido, Dan Jolly, and John Jackson Miller. Big name lineup there. Actually, Larry Niven's going to join us on our panel because we have numerous panels lined up. One of them is going to be about the 50th anniversary. That's what we're celebrating this year, 50 years of Star Trek the Animated Series. And he actually wrote one of the episodes. That's going to be exciting to have an author of his caliber joining us to talk about this anniversary. Yes, he's a known science fiction writer. He's done uh, lots of stuff. And the others as well. We love seeing them. One of the things that makes the Trek Trek at Dragon Con so unique is having Star Trek authors there. But what about Star Trek independent film producers? Matt Green, Scott Little, Bobby Nash, 
and people who have been in fan films, Gil Gerard and Aaron Gray. I've said a hundred times before, if you love Star Trek, don't overlook the Star Trek fan films that you could watch on YouTube. They're exciting. Yeah, we, we watch them ourselves. We love them. They're, I think they're just... Um, they're such a great love letter to Star Trek, but, you know, by the fans, for the fans. And and these are made by people who really love the show and, and know the show so well. Isn't that an interesting concept? People <laughs> who love the show and know the show work on a Star Trek production. Go figure. <laughs> yes, exactly. How about the Star Trek artists that will be there? Joe Caroni, Sam De La Rosa, Scott Hanna, Carrie Nord. Andy Price, Mark Dos Santos, Michael Shelfer. Fantastic people, especially associated with the Star Trek comic books, will be there to meet fans, sign autographs, and be on panels. How about Star Trek The Original Series guests? George Takei. Always high energy. Yeah, um, so he's doing a lot of cons now, which, which he always has, and he's been to Dragon Con several times, and it's great to see him back. How about Deep Space Nine guests? Sally Richardson Whitfield and Tracy Scogans. And they actually they're they are as guests of other shows, but but since they were on Star Trek, I had to mention them. I mean Cross pollination, yeah. you know, we're bitrexual. We like Star Trek and other sci fi. Yeah, and they're they're a great actress. Especially the crossover them. with Babylon Five there? Yeah, Tracy Scogans, definitely. Voyager guest? Garrett Wong. He's there every year. He actually runs the Trek track. And let me tell you something. He knows his Trek. He loves Trek. He is a fan favorite. He's such a likable person. I love seeing Garrett every year at Dragon Con. He's always fun, and he tells such great stories, and he's really, he's so funny, too, which is he great. He is absolutely yeah. hysterical. We're, his humor didn't come across. I mean, that's a sign of a good actor. He didn't play himself when he was on Voyager. He played the character of Ensign Kim. The forever ensign, we call him. But when you see him on stage in real life, the guy is a riot. How about the Orville? Come on, we know that the Orville is Star Trek without being called Star Trek. Right. That's why we, we always talk about the Orville. Um, Scott Grimes, Mark Jackson, Peter Macon, and Adrian Palicki. Great lineup there. Yeah, I'm excited to see That's them. That's going to be a good panel, to have all them there. Yes, how about Strange New Worlds? Christina Chong, Celia Rose Gooding, Ensign Mount, and Ethan Peck. Another all-star lineup. Yeah, that should be great. I think, you know, Ensign Mount and Ethan Peck, I mean, since they've been to Dragon Con so many times, I think they love it. They must love coming to Dragon Con. <laughs> they do. They do. Ensign Mount, last time, remember? He's like, he was so excited when he found out we're from Nashville. Because Ensign yeah. Mount grew up less than an hour away from us. Yes, he grew up that's in, he's right. a Tennessean. So, so yeah, so that's cool, yeah. How about Star Trek Prodigy? Dee Bradley Baker, uh, who, who has also worked on Star Wars, so it'll be great to see him. Yeah. Great voice actor. And Star Trek Discovery? Emily Coots, Wilson Cruz, and Ian Alexander. Fantastic lineup that we're looking forward to at Dragon Con. We did touch on it. A little bit, but let's go into our panels that we'll, we will be presenting in our activities that we will be involved in at Dragon Con. For the first time ever, we are going to host a Star Trek walking tour of the con. Even though there is a Trek track that is in the lower level of the Hilton, 
there is a Trek presence at all five hotels and the America's Mart. Both America's Marts, actually. We're going to be giving a walking tour, especially for newbies. But if you've been to Dragon Con and you think the Star Trek activities are limited to one or two hotels, you're sadly mistaken. We're going to fill you in on the details. So we're going to give a walking tour, which means we're going to show everybody around the different hotels and show you where uh, the rooms are, where, where different Star Trek panels and activities will be. Totally. When it comes to gaming... When it comes to large panel rooms, when it uh, comes the to beauty, de- the beauty pageant, the, exactly the, the karaoke, all all the Star Trek, oh, and the ten forward party, all the Star Trek events you want to see. It's spread throughout the con. The control center is the Trek track, but there's much more to it. So definitely look for us on Friday morning when we lead. The, it's going to be roughly a one hour trek across the entire convention. So make sure you bring some comfortable shoes. And it is on the schedule, so it'll be right after the um, the opening ceremonies for the Trek track. Exactly. <laughs> hey, anybody who's been to our panels and our discussions and our activities knows we've got a lot of swag to give away. So if you love Trek and you love cool things, make sure you join us at this walking tour. What else are we doing there, baby? One of our panels, The Exotic Aliens of Deep Space Nine, on Friday at 7 o'clock p.m., it's going to be a fun one. We're celebrating, what, 35 years of Deep Space Nine? Yes, love Deep Space Nine. And there are some incredible aliens on there. And we're going to focus in on the ones that don't get as much recognition, that are really intently good. Such a deep show. So we're going to go a deep dive into these aliens. And next, uh, make sure you see us in the parade, Saturday morning at 10. Every year, you hand out ribbons to be part of the Star Trek section of the world-famous Dragon Con Parade. Later on in the program, we're going to be talking about the history of the parade, how it started, and what it's like to be in it. What are you excited about the parade this year? Um, seeing all the people as we walk through the town. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about thousands wake up early in the morning to line the streets of downtown Atlanta. It's an energy charge. And we'll be doing a panel on 50 years of Star Trek the Animated Series. Saturday at 7 p.m. It's going to be a fun one. If you've pushed aside the animated series saying that's not real Trek, I don't watch cartoons, really rethink it because we're going to do some... We've done our homework. We're going to show you about how the animated series, not only the history of it, the time period of, of where it was first aired, but also the lasting effects on Trek lore. It's definitely not anything to miss. And we do have our panel up on social media so look look for it there and we look forward to seeing all our fans at dragon con speaking of atlanta we will be attending once again on halloween weekend monsterama the incredible sci-fi and horror convention special guests related to star trek this year include laura banks who we had on, as a guest on our previous episode of star pod trek nicholas meyer Stephen Manley, and Clayton Landy, plus more. What do you think about those guests? I think it's great. Yeah, we're real excited to see them. Um, Monsterama, I mean, I've always loved it. It's been going on several years, but this is the first time they're having these major Star Trek guests. So we know there's going to be a reunion there, Laura Banks and Nicholas Meyer. I believe that's the first time they've had a convention appearance together, that it's the navigator on the Reliant Con ship with the director of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Yes, that would be so cool to see them together. 
So a great Star Trek II reunion. And Stephen Manley played one of the Spocks in Star Trek Three, so another Star Trek movie guest. Another Spock? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so cool, yeah. I mean, I love all the Spocks, so yeah, definitely want to see him. And another guest, uh, Clayton Landy, is the one who played Lieutenant Fuchida in the Deep Space Nine episode Prodigal Daughter. So a Deep Space Nine guest. Excellent. 35 years of Deep Space Nine this year. I'll celebrate with him. And also at Monsterama, Alan Howarth. He did the sound effects for Star Trek The Motion Picture, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, Four: The Voyage Home, Five: The Final Frontier, and Six: The Undiscovered Country. And he will be doing a concert Friday night. Hey, and let's not forget our Trexgiving tradition. We will be attending Starbase Indy in Indianapolis, Indiana, November 24th through 26th. Join us for this amazing Star Trek family reunion. But check out our show notes to find us at these conventions. Starlog Magazine, issue number 67, cover date, February 1983. Log Entries Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Exploring movies with Leonard Nimoy. It's one thing to read about how movies are made each month in Starlog, but it's another story entirely when you can watch the work being done. With that premise in mind, Nickelodeon, the children's cable channel, has begun a 12-part series which will explore how movies are made with attention paid to the special effects. So Leonard Nimoy... We'll be hosting a series entitled Stand By, Lights, Camera, Action. In fact, the opening episode, Leonard Nimoy spoke with Christopher Reeve and Richard Pryor on the set of Superman 3 in England. Did you ever watch this (laughs) show when you were a kid? I did. I remember it on Nickelodeon. It it seems like, though, that it was on sporadically and like like, it wasn't really on every week. Yes, exactly. It's one of those things like... Yeah, I loved watching it, though. I mean, hey, another show with Leonard Nimoy, and it's about entertainment. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. I know they they did a segment on Return of the Jedi, too. I remember that. Which is a crazy connection there, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was one of those shows that was obviously interspersed every few weeks. It wasn't a regular show. But it was, that was enough to, to whet our appetite. We were so hungry for any sci-fi during this time period. New from JPL. Caltech's Jet Propulsion Laboratory announced two major astronomical discoveries last October. Methane has been found for the first time on two other bodies in the solar system, and an international team of astronomers has discovered the most distant object in the universe. So up until this time period, it was thought that methane was a byproduct that was found exclusively on Earth. But now, they've discovered that methane was on Pluto as well as Triton. That's Neptune's largest satellite. Go figure. Yeah, very interesting. And it's amazing that we can discover these things just from from here on Earth. Also, trillions of miles beyond the solar system, astronomers from U.S. and Great Britain and Australia have determined that there's a quasar 12 billion light years away. 
Quasars today present one of astronomy's greatest puzzles. They appear to be the most distant objects in the universe. They also appear to be expanding vast amounts of energy, much more energy than theory can account for. The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, once said, If we cannot learn to positively value these small differences between us on our own planet, God help us when we get to space and meet the variety that is almost certainly out there. Star Pod Trek, celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. Greetings, it's Bill. And Jeremy. With The Final Frontiersman, we're a YouTube channel about Star Trek with a heavy focus on the Star Trek Adventures role-playing game. Come join us as we discuss all Trek topics such as reviews, cosplay, and more. Find us on YouTube under The Final Frontiersman. Let's see what's out there. The Dragon Con Parade. We're going to talk about the history of the Dragon Con Parade with... Gary Poole. And Gary, how long have you been working with this parade program? Well, I've been coming to Dragon Con since 1989, and in 2000, the uh, North American Salvation Army Conference was held in Atlanta, and it kind of overlapped. The end of their convention overlapped with the start of Dragon Con, which was a lot of hilarity and high humor, at least on our part. Now, at that time, I understand there was only two hotels. It was the Hyatt and the Marriott, and the Marriott was considered the smaller of the two. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, actually, that was. Uh, things have changed. But what was interesting about it was on Saturday morning, it was either Friday or Saturday morning, I can't remember, it's been a while, the Salvation Army had a parade down Peachtree Street, and we were up on... You know, looking out from the balcony of one of the hotel rooms, there were a bunch of guests and stuff in the green room. And we're looking down, and what was great about it was when they got in front of the hotel, all the people on the sides of the street were Dragon Con people. So you look down and you see all of our kind of people. You know, you have Klingons and Stormtroopers and superheroes and all that, and the Salvation Army people. And I'm standing next to Hertzer. J.G. Hertzler of Deep Space Nine. Well, yeah, yeah, that's right. He was uh, one of the greatest Klingons of all time. And he's watching this, and he turns to me with a dead man expression. He says, this looks like something out of a Fellini film, <laughs> which was really true. And everybody started laughing. And then a woman in the back of the room, the chairman of the convention was in the room. She turned to the chairman and said, hey, we should do a parade. And we thought about it, and we're like, that is so crazy enough, we should do it. And here we are. This is the largest annual parade in the city of Atlanta. There are They cap it at around, I think, 2,000, 2,500 participants. And even though we're still coming out of the pandemic, good crowd, but pre-pandemic, the last pre-pandemic parade, there were over 75,000 people lined up along the parade route, and they estimate maybe 10, 15% of them are actually from Dragon Con. This is an event that people from all around the city of Atlanta come downtown to see because, hey, it's the best parade in town. And, and you're I, right. At times, it is the breast parade. Yeah, well, it is the breast best parade. But I do have to throw in a little side story because there's a lot of people out there that say, but what about the 501st? Where's the 501st? Because we hear people talking about the 501st. See, what really made everything come together was at the end of the Salvation Army Parade, a group of the 501st full Stormtrooper armor decided 
they were going to infiltrate. So they got a group and came in behind him, marching along behind the Salvation Army, and they made it about a block before the police said, uh, come on, guys, you're not part of the group. And when we saw stormtroopers marching down Peachtree Street, that's when it crystallized, we have to do this. And to this day, how does the parade end? It ends with Santa Claus, because of course yeah. it does. We're at the end of the Stormtroopers of Santa. Why had Santa Claus work his way into That is actually an homage to uh, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Interesting. So it's always Stormtroopers and then Santa Claus yep. shutting it down, well, right? And then a whole bunch of uh, city garbage trucks. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting ready right now to talk about the Dragon Con Parade. And these are veterans of the parade itself, the Trek section. With us is Ryan Maltese. I'm Tom. Leela McMichael. Carter. Rebecca Freeman. All right, guys. What do you love about being in the Star Trek section of the Dragon Con Parade? It's just, it's great to see everyone's smiling faces when you have all the, the different groups that walk by. And, you know, the one great thing about Dragon Con is there's... There's just so much to see and do, so many different groups and different walks of life of people that just get along, get together, just have fun. I love all the costumes and all the passion that people are displaying here. And I also love all these people I've met over the years. It's a really cool thing to do, and this is part of my regular Dragon Con now. Yeah, I'm in the Star Trek section because I'm a lifelong Trekkie and because Star Trek offers so much hope for the future. It's, it's good to see so many people out there supporting the fandom, supporting not just Star Trek, but all of sci-fi. And uh, I do what I can to help energize the crowd. Yeah, um, I think being able to represent Trek is so great because it's such a multi-generational fandom. So I think it's really awesome that you can see fans that are very small children to elderly grandparents, and that brings them together. And I think that's one of the things I love about Trek is that it really doesn't matter what walk of life or what age you are. There's a show for you, and there's some lessons there that everybody can get behind. It's wonderful also to see so many kids know what the Vulcan salute is. That seems to be the universal sign for Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of my favorite things is, is when they throw up their hands and you see kids that are, like I said, toddlers and then grandparents all throwing up their hands and everybody's just one big group at that point. And it really leads to what I think Trek is about, is about humanity and everybody coming together. Uh, but what's even more encouraging is so many people know are broadening their horizons and learning things like the Klingon language. I get a lot of kaplaws. I get a lot of uh, uh, and that's good. I think it's uh, it broadens their scope. They understand that we Klingons uh, actually are the best, greatest hope for the galaxy, not the pajama-wearing Federation. Um, so I only TMP pajamas. That is true. That is true. But that is a significant part of the Federation, and it's, well, I'm not saying it's a sad point and a dropping down of it, but we good Klingons, we're, we're ignoring Discovery. Don't look at our ridges in Discovery. But we've got good ridges, you know, and uh, it's like ruffles. You can never have enough. Hey, this is David Hewitt from the band Foot Pound Force. Look for us as we perform live on stage at DragonCon. Now, stay tuned for more exciting content from StarPod Trek. Hi there, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Casto. 
Welcome to uh, our little section here today. We're looking at the star log from February 1983. And we're talking about an, an article called Jack Soward's The Man Who Killed Mr. Spock. Oh my. What did you think of this one? Do you know, it was very interesting. It, you know, all these behind the scene things of what happened that don't, you don't typically get to see in the, the mainstream press. You know, this guy we know killed Mr. Spock and, and he is the screenwriter for Star Trek two. What, what I found really interesting is, and, and we'll talk about this later on. It comes up in the article we read. But who the hell is Jack Sowards? Yeah. I actually went back and watched the beginning of the movie looking for the credits and his name appears. It's yeah. right there. And interestingly, because I've always seen interviews with Nicholas Meyer, who sort of talks about, hey, I went off and I wrote the script in 10 days. Nobody ever does that. And it was awesome. And I was young and I, I knocked it out. And I'm like, oh, Nick Meyer wrote the script for Star Trek 2. Oh, right. That's what I thought. Uh-uh. That's not what happened. No. <laughs> no. And it, it's, it's interesting because even later in this article, it's like everybody thought. That yes. Yes. Myers I, wrote it. I think what happened was Swords wrote the screenplay and then there were different versions. And I think things got confusing. And uh, finally, they when they brought Nick Meyer in to direct, Meyer said, hey, look, you've got all these different ideas. Let's walk through and see who likes what. And then I'll write a script from all the things that we like. So it was Jack Soward's script, ultimately, or screenplay. But Nick Meyer kind of did a um, rewrite job on it. Yeah. and Without I, without credit. Right. And I think he did a lot of it on the fly, too. It seemed that way, didn't it, from this article? From this article, sure. And, and this is, again, it's an interview of Jack that, you know, was in... Starlog magazine. Right. So this is, you know, you're getting quotes right from the screenwriter. Yep. And I thought it's funny too, because it is 1983. It is still a time when people behaved themselves a little bit and, and gave a more polished and, and a more considerate view of um, their association with other people. Jack Sowards comes right out and says what he's thinking. Yeah, he does. This was a fun article to read. It, it, yes, very eye-opening. And again, it's his own words, really. Right. So it, it is kind of also refreshing in, to some degree. He starts by um, talking about his association and where it began with uh, the Star Trek franchise. He talks about getting a call from Harv Bennett. And Harv Bennett said, hey, uh, I'm working on the next Star Trek movie. What do you know about Star Trek? And Soward says, <laughs> um, lying, everything. Everything, yes. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> right. He wanted the job. Yes, he did. They, um, The two men got together on December 4th, 1980. And uh, I thought this was interesting. How about Bennett already had some of the major um, story beats or plot points already worked out. Things like. You know, Khan was returning and um, the relationship between David and his mother, a problem that Kirk needed to address that Khan would become involved with. And then how does that that issue, that problem bring Kirk and his son together? Yeah. And when you think about the movie, that's kind of all it is. It is. 
it's like the framework that everything else is hung on. Well, right. And, and you know, there's, uh, and I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but there's lots of very interesting little points that really just drive of, is this really about Kirk and he has a son that he didn't know about and that relationship and developing that relationship? Or is it about Khan? Or is it all of it? Yeah. Just kind of kind of interesting how you, you can just boil it down. Yep, exactly. And of course, there was a big fear, right, that they discussed in this meeting. They did not want to go down the same road that the motion picture went down and duplicate some of those problems that had popped up, right? Sowards um, kind of talked about the plot of the motion picture and kind of <laughs> called it, I thought this was an interesting word, mechanical. Yeah. He, he referred, he also referred to as, it was like a family reunion. No one did anything but stand around and pose for the camera. (laughs) It's kind of true. Everybody had their, their entry moment, right? Their reintroduction moment. And everybody looked nice when they did that, but he calls it out. He says, there's not much action here. And every, like you said, everybody's just standing around reacting to the camera. And he also says that they got carried away with this, with the special effects. We've talked, Bob, we've talked about this many times where the motion picture, it, it, they were really gunning for, I need special effects. I need it to look like Star Wars and Superman and, you know, Moonraker or whatever. And so maybe that's, why there was light on the story. We again, there's this isn't about motion picture, but there was a lot of special effects in that movie, and and good special effects too. Oh, it's it's a bit of an empty suit. The suit is incredible. It's impeccable. It's one of the nicest suits you'll ever see. But there's not much inside it. Right. <laughs> right. It's and, um, a gorgeous movie, and. It's one of those things that you could probably put Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon on and yeah. just watch that movie with the sound down. Yeah. And, you know, you might get an interesting experience. <laughs> and we'll just, we'll just leave right it there. right there. <laughs> they wanted to make this into a different movie, like another episode of the original series or or a uh, continuation of a story. Yeah, yeah. I, I even thought that was interesting because uh, Sword said we were going for a good episode first. Yes. He says, uh, I'm gonna, I have a quote I wrote down here. What do you think the Trekkies wanted? They didn't want a bunch of effects. They wanted a good new TV episode. And once we had that, I, I think he means once they worked out the story, then we blew it up into a feature. Yes. That was, it's an amazing approach. It's, I think, um, uh, a great way to do it. You're being true to what came before the show. Yeah. And he even mentions, and I forget which film critic, but it was, hey, you just put out another episode or or a TV episode. And he's like, yes, they get it. (laughs) (laughs) This is not a criticism. It's good. That's what we were trying to do. Exactly. I I even thought it was interesting, too, that um, he explained that Wrath of Khan was, in a sense, 
a TV pilot as well. Yes. Paramount as, as early as 82, 83 was looking for their next Star Trek TV project. They saw the money. Um, I said Paramount. It was really the networks. They saw right, the money. The yeah. That the original series had generated in syndication and thought, wow, this property is hot. Let's get something out of this. And that's why Swords wrote young characters into the mix because yeah. he thought maybe these young characters would be the next generation, if you will, of Star Trek oh. characters on a TV show. I see what you did there. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> so in Paramount's like, you know, to add on to that, they're like, no, we can't do a TV series. It's too expensive, but let's make this and this movie into the pilot. And so that's, and then we'll see where we go from there. So adding these new characters, these younger characters. Who don't who, cost a lot. Who don't cost, good point. <laughs> you know, use them. And hopefully this launches into a, a TV show. You know, we go to the training mission, the Kobayashi Maru plot yeah, line. And, right. And Seward adds this, or he, he said that he added this specifically to introduce this younger cast that could be used, not just Savick and David, but, you know, there were several others on the, the bridge, which didn't really get a lot of airtime afterwards, but they could have. I mean, it was an entire trainee crew. Yes. Uh, so you had a lot of young people that, that might appear later on in a TV show. So that I thought that was interesting that here they are trying to restart the franchise, but Oh, by the way, let's think about the potential for future TV property. Yeah. I, I also thought it was interesting here that um, swords is not holding back. He, he complained that he had not received the credit he deserved for the script citing a, a New Yorker article that completely gave all the credit to Nicholas Meyer, <laughs> yeah. just as we were talking about earlier. That's really interesting. He also made a point, too, to say, you know, I know Gene is the executive consultant, but he definitely, it's his baby, and he did lend a lot to this, um, including when they, they sent him, you know, the the script and other documents, he came back with six to eight pages of questions and criticisms. And I'll yeah. quote Jack here. He says, including, apparently we violated some law of the universe, the primary rule. <laughs> right. I laughed at that too, right? The prime directive, the primary rule. Yes. You okay. violated it. Yes. But obviously they fixed it. Yes, obviously they did. That's funny. I also thought uh, it was cool that, and we don't hear this in in accounts of Star Trek history, especially concerning Star Trek II. I don't know why we don't hear this. Yeah. But Swords sat beside Harv Bennett when they screened the 79 original series episodes, looking for that kernel, looking for that that thing that would spark a new movie. And, you know, Sarge recounts that. I was, you know, we were there. We went out and spent, you know, weeks watching episodes. Yeah. You know, you, modern accounts today talk about Harv Bennett doing it, but you have this image of Harv Bennett being by himself in the theater. So that, I thought that was, um, 
a, a very cogent point, one one that needs to be remembered. This guy was more involved than history gives him credit for. Oh yeah. He uh he also talked about how Myers rewrite and Myers' involvement in the script led to some plot holes. Yeah. And some inconsistencies that really don't make sense in the Star Trek universe. And you probably know what's the most obvious one. Well, to me, there's a couple obvious ones, but let's start at the beginning. Chekhov wasn't in space. That's, that's the one. And so how did Khan even know Chekhov? Right. That's, that's the most obvious, I think. And, and anybody who is a fan who watched the original series knows, Hey, he, how was he going to check off his name? This isn't right. Yeah. Yeah. That's an obvious one. Well, and, and vice versa. Chekhov wouldn't know. Right. Gone. Maybe, maybe he's heard stories. Maybe he's heard people talk about it, but the script didn't say that. The script led a viewer to believe that Chekhov had firsthand knowledge. Right. And con. But, and con. But that was one thing that got cut, though, is Jack had included Chekhov uh, screening a library yeah. tape or something of, about Khan. Yes. And that was cut. And I don't know if they filmed it or if it just got cut from the, the script. I don't think that was clear in the, in the interview. But Right. No, it, it wasn't clear. But you're right. He talked about that. Um, another moment that seemed pretty obvious, too, was Savick crying during Spock's funeral. Yes. You know, here's a, a Vulcan woman, um, you know, showing emotion. That's that's taboo. That's not supposed to happen. It's not supposed to happen. And I like what he said. Well, he, he said somebody probably told her to do that. Or, you know, because really mm-hmm. being a Vulcan isn't acting and showing, doing a lot of motions and things like that. So somebody probably said, hey, maybe for your career, you should show some emotion, shed a tear. Probably, probably someone offering some, let's say, a direction. Yes. Perhaps. Yes. And Jack's response is, it was ridiculous. Yeah. Those were his words. I thought it was uh, kind of cool, too, that Sword, in his original version of the script, had Kirk and Khan meeting face-to-face in the Genesis cave. Yes. Rather than being separated, you know, by two, being on the bridge of two different uh, two different starships. That would have been a very different conflict. It, it would it would have changed a lot of things. And, and, you know, it got me thinking, wow, they never did see each other face-to-face. It was only over a view screen. Mm-hmm. And and even then, it wasn't at the same time because let's face it, the Reliant, <laughs> it was the Enterprise bridge just painted up a little look a little bit different. Yes. And then Kong came in and did his lines, and you know, so they weren't weren't even talking to each other. Right. So they never even met during the production. And Jack even he said that he was writing Khan to be something different, like a mystic, which. Maybe I don't agree with him here. Um, right. I, where Meyer's version was Attila the Hun. Which, that's what we get from the from the uh, Space Seed episode, is this guy is a conqueror. Right. We don't get the idea that he's a mystic. So, yeah, that one, I, I kind of read that and was like, whoa, where did you pick that up at? Yeah. You know, he's not a sorcerer or a mystic. He doesn't have magical powers. He talked about controlling people's minds and things like that. 
where was that related? It was never related uh, to us from Space Seed. So, yeah, it, that almost felt more like Cat's Paw or something like that, the way he described it. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd have to say swing and a miss on that one, Jack. Yeah, agreed. But always throughout all of the versions of the script, there was always the death of Spock. Yes. And and here's a quote I wrote down uh, from Sowards. He says, the way I had it, he walks into the room, and I, he's talking about that little engineering room. He walks into the room just as he would walk onto the bridge, knowing from the moment he steps inside that he's dying. It was just the fact that you knew he was dying. And I, I really think what he's trying to say here is that Spock was composed. It was... He behaved as if it was just another day for him, just like he, when he walked on the bridge. He was very matter-of-fact about getting the job done, even though he knew he was going to die. Yeah. And that remains that remains in the film. You know, Spock never looks scared, never looks worried, never pleads for his life or says, why me? It was business. Yeah. He had to do it, and that's just what he was going to do. Yeah, exactly. I I did think it was funny. Uh, so it talks about Kirk's line in the very, in the beginning yeah. of the film after yes. uh, Spock dies. And I say that when in air quotes, right in, in the um, mock battle sequence, and he says to, to Spock, aren't you dead? And of course, you know, that's to sort of trick viewers who came to the movie that day thinking that Spock was going to die. Oh, well he just died, you know, in a mocking fashion during a training exercise, he's not really dead. We'll see him in the rest of the film. Right. Just to throw people off. Yeah. Well, bit. and he also knew that some, the story would get leaked. And so, yep. you know, let's, let's just misdirect it's, here. It's a brilliant idea. If you're coming to the theater, hearing the rumor that Spock's going to die in this movie. And in the first five minutes, Spock gets again, air quote, killed in a training exercise, but he's not really dead. He stands up and he's talking to everybody. You're like, Oh, well, that was a lot to do about nothing. And then that, right. And then that suspense that you have waiting for Spock's death is, is gone and forgotten. And you begin to get into the rest of the movie. Yep. It was brilliant. It was a brilliant move. It was. Here's the crazy thing. So just on that point, the crazy thing is, this is Jack's one and only feature film um, script. Other other than this, he's written for TV. True. So yes. to have that forethought to do something like that in the script and and the, some of the complexities, it's it's pretty amazing. It really is. You're right because a TV script is different than a motion picture script. But I think he enjoyed the chance to have more time. Yeah. Right? He's He's got more time to play with themes here, and which you don't always have in the TV script because time, you know, you've got – it's not 60 minutes for an hour-long show. It's actually more like 51 because of commercials. So you got to get your story point, points in and, and, and move through the script. Right. So, and, so, you, and you got to pump it out fast because the next one's due – you know, yeah, right, right around quick. the corner. Yeah, yeah. So he's playing with a lot of different themes here. One of them being age. Yes. And, and I thought it was um, 
really poignant for a man, William Shatner's age, who had just turned 50 to be also portraying a man just turning 50 in the film who is feeling the, you know, his age has to wear bifocals, doesn't seeing well. Yeah. And, and ironically, Sowards tells us in that article, well, I did that because I was facing those things at that time myself. I was feeling the cross of middle age. Yeah. You know, on my shoulders. He says, um, here's a nice quote again. There's a lot of me philosophically in the script. I don't believe in the no win situation. Kirk's solution to the Kobayashi Maru was legitimate. Nothing limits you except yourself. I was like, whoa, Jack Soward's offering life experience <laughs> advice here. That's awesome. It is. But, but when we watched Star Trek two, when it first came out, didn't we do that? We were like, what? Yeah. Find any way you can to do what you need to do or what did you hear through the film? Right. From the very opening scene, no one, no one scenario. How are you going to deal with the no one scenario? It it wasn't that there was an answer. It was how are you going to deal with it? There's no right or wrong answer. It's a, it's a test of character. How are you going to deal with it? Savick through the movie asks Kirk, what did you do? How did you handle it? And finally, right. When it looks like they're done, they're beaten, they're locked up in the Genesis cave, there's no way out. You know, and Kirk gets the call from Spock and looks around at everybody and has a grin on his face and says, I don't believe in the no-win scenario. Yeah. That's his way out of it. He just doesn't believe in it. It doesn't yeah. exist for him. Yeah, I liked um I like what Sowards had to say. I, I appreciated learning more about the background of this script. And it especially it's funny because at our age dealing with things, right, that Kirk in the film is dealing with, it meant a lot. It meant a lot more to understand where that all came from. Well, yeah, definitely. And when we first see the Star Trek II, we might not have necessarily got it, but we definitely get it now. We definitely get it now. I mean, we, we I think people got it to a degree. You know, we were uh, teenagers or early 20s, almost 20, I guess. Mm-hmm. I'd seen my father go through similar things. You probably did, too. So. You know, you got it from an observational point of view, but yeah, now having lived it, it's a little different. Yes. Right. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was good. The uh, Sowards makes this point that he would not be attending conventions <laughs> yep. and he would not be involved with the sequel. That one blew me away. You know, when you're the writer of the script, right? This is your baby. Yeah. And, and it, you, the first time you've done a feature film, this could launch you into yeah. doing bigger, better projects with more money. And he didn't seem too interested in that. No, I, his reason for not wanting to do the sequel was that he didn't want to spend time recreating something, which he already left behind him. Yeah. He is moving forward. That's in the past. Um, I'm, I'm moving down the road towards something new. Yeah. So lots of life lessons here. Lots of life lessons. I, I got the sense after reading this article that I wouldn't mind having a beer with Jack Soward sometime if, if we could. Yes. If the timing lined up, if the timing lined up a little bit better, <laughs> right? Before Wrath of the Con, Soward's writing credits Includes shows like Daniel Boone and The High Chaparral and Bonanza. 
the streets of San Francisco, and even Barnaby Jones. While Jack Soward said, hey, I'm not writing another Star Trek movie, and he did not write another Star Trek movie, he did write an episode for T.J. Hooker, starring William Shatner, and he wrote an episode for Star Trek The Next Generation, Where Silence Has Lease. So he did revisit Star Trek again down the road. And uh, Jack Sowards died in 2007. Any final thoughts, Cal? I encourage people to go and Google him and and read some interviews. We both read other things other than Starlog about Jack. And um, just very interesting character. Lots to learn from him. Hello and welcome. Again, this is Bert Bruce or Bruce Bert. Our article today concerns David Gerald's soaring column, S-O-A-R-I-N-G, soaring, not boring. Anyway, the column is called The Man, The Fan Who Molded Himself, which is a take off on his book, The Man Who Folded Himself. And as usual, David Gerald, whom we all know and love and respect, check him out circa 2023 on Facebook. He's still as liberal as ever, but he's an interesting uh, person and can't help but not uh, comment on his uh, far-left policies and ideology, which the signs were all there back in 1983, 82, 81, in the uh, soaring or rumblings or whatever column he was calling it at that time. What's fun about David Gerald is even though he's got a liberal ideology, it's fun to uh, read his point of view. Might not agree with it. Might think, hey, that's a little bit... uh, naive in your thinking and uh, he proceeds from illogic rather than logic which to me logic is the uh, be all and end all i'm very spock like and i love logic and try to use it as often as possible because logic is good but anyway in this uh, column the fan who molded himself we first off uh, read about his uh, observations about star trek the motion motionless picture, as I like to call it, and Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. In both of these films, in the first five minutes, we discover the Klingons are in attack mode. And, of course, in the first film, the V'ger cloud destroys the Klingons summarily in five minutes without any hesitation because the Klingons aren't bright enough to realize, hey, this, uh, this cloud has more to it than we give it credit for. Second movie... Of course, it's the Kobayashi Maru test, but we find that we don't know this in 1982. We just think that uh, Lieutenant Commander Savick is uh, piloting the Enterprise, and then we discover that uh, the Klingons have uh, intercepted them and are going to destroy them, and of course, they do. But it's a test, of course. It's a simulation. So David Gerald uh, posits that all of the games that are out at that time, circa 1982, concern the Klingons and the Enterprise going to war with each other. And there's no derivation or no uh, deviation from that premise. And it's true, back in the 1980s, mostly if you found a Star Trek game online or whatever, it was a quadrant and uh, the uh, Klingons were represented by the letter K or an asterisk, and your job was to hunt them down and to either photon torpedo them or phaser them out of existence. And that's well and good, because guess what? The Klingons are the bad guys. That's, you know, the cowboys and Indians, the black hat versus the white hat, Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker. You've got to have the uh, 
it's the yin and yang of life. You've got to have the black hat versus the white hat to have any kind of uh, story continuity or make the story interesting. It's not a real interesting story that the Klingons and the Federation meet up and they shake hands and create some kind of a uh, peace treaty. Boring. But he does make a good point that uh, the Klingons back in that time served as Russia. The Romulans, of course, were the Red Chinese. And, of course, the Federation was the uh, representation of the United States of America. So that was the ideology of the 1960s. And it was a little naive and rah, 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 go USA. Later on in the 80s, when he created uh, The Next Generation, Majel, I remember reading that Majel Roddenberry said that Gene Roddenberry had great remorse for what he'd done with the Klingons. He said the Klingons weren't the bad guys at all. They were misunderstood. And he created the character Worf as the first uh, Klingon member of the Federation. And Worf is a great template. I mean, let's face it, that's one of the greatest Star Trek characters ever created. He's a fan favorite. Michael Dorn's great. And he really did a lot to... Uh, reinvigorate the Klingons and to make them more complex as a character, which is all well and good, and that's great. Love it. It's uh, exactly as it should go. And the Russians, I'm sure they love their children as much as we love our children. The Red Chinese, I'm sure that even though they go about in a different way, I'm sure they love their people as well in just a different way. <laughs> they just have a different, unique way of showing it. But each ideology is separated by their own political bent, if we can put it that way. I'm trying to be delicate here. And, of course, David Gerald is very liberal. We know this. And that's okay. That's his ideology. He's a liberal person. That's his, uh, his right and his inherent duty to express himself in that manner. But when it comes to fictional Star Trek universe, he's way out of, way out of base. He's just not, he's not on the same planet as the rest of us. If you look at the Klingons, their first impulse is to punch you in the face because they are a warrior race. If we met the Mongols or the Huns back in the day, they would, as soon as rape and pillages, look at you. They're not there to make friends. They're not there to uh, take over new territories with peace and understanding. They're there to put their DNA on your land and to take it over, and it will become their land because they are the superior. The Romans, the, Ro the same thing. When Rome went to Judah, Ju Judea, they took over. They created their own uh, template there. They took over. They gave them uh, plumbing. They uh, gave them their system of justice. They uh, taught them their language. Uh, so the people of that, the Middle East, they learned Roman ways. Same with Great Britain. If the Romans came over, they were the conquer. They were the conquerors. They took over and they made it happen. Anyway, long story short, David Gerald posits that in the postulates, if you will, in the Star Trek universe that most of the plots concern Kirk fighting for peace. Even when he went to the Mirror Mirror universe, even though that Kirk was a filthy, savage conqueror, his Kirk tried to plant the seeds of peace with Spock to tell him, to tell Mirror Universe Spock that maybe there was a different way to, you know, find uh, a solution rather than just wiping out a planet, which is all well and good. You always want peace. I'm, I agree with you. Peace is great. Peace is wonderful. In the long run, May I point uh, a finger to the direction of the Ukraine and uh, Russians, Vladimir Putin, right now? Can you tell me what's going on over there? Have they worked out any peaceful solutions to uh, reunite Ukraine and Russia? No, I don't think they have. And uh, more often than not, we've been the Vietnam War. We can go back to the Korean War, both World War One and World War Two, 
And right now we posit the World War III we're just on the cusp of. We're warlike nations. It's seated in our DNA. I'm going to use it my own personal revelation here, revelation, as I should say. I work in the security industry, do a lot of work with the Department of Social Services, and we work with children who have abandonment issues or uh, for whatever reason, their parents may have been uh, drug abusers, and these kids suffer from a lot of uh, emotional and physical and mental abuse, and I have to take care of these kids. And it's almost coded in their DNA. I wear a, uh, a 40 caliber weapon on my hip, and the first thing they ask me about is, how do you draw it down? What, what tactics do you use? They, they're more fascinated with that weapon on my hip than anything else about me. I'm six foot, I'm six foot six. I'm a white guy. I try to, you know, relate and say, Hey, I'm so-and-so tell me about yourself. Tell me about your family. But it always draws back to the weapon on my hip and what kind of violent methods you have to use to, you know, draw down on people. And I try to dissuade that conversation. I try not to have it. I say, look, you're, your best weapon is your tongue. If you can talk people down and tell them what's what, but other than that, you just have to, you know, you have to physically restrain them. And I've had to do that with these kids with a, you know, with tactics I'm not going to talk about here. What I'm trying to teach you is that it seems it's coded in our DNA that these kids don't ask about peaceful things. They're not asking me about, hey, what's, uh, you know, what's the best way to negotiate a truce? No, they want to know about the weapon, how to draw down, how to take the other guy out. And why? Because it's coded in our entertainment, in our books, in our music. It's not about, oh, you know, I had a peaceful, loving day with my girlfriend and we went out and had a picnic at the lake. No, they want to know, you know, about the bitches and the hoes. <laughs> I hope I didn't get bleeped on that one. I try to keep this PG-13, but sometimes you just got to talk about the bitches and the hoes. So when you're planning that information into a young kid's mind, and it's in all the films and entertainment. I think David Gerald's just a little bit naive. So, of course, our Star Trek games of 1980 were about destroying Klingons and uh, taking out uh, the rebel factions of the, uh, the Empire and things of that nature. It's a violent time we live in. I think in these years from 1900, when the First World War started in 1919 to this present day of 2023, will be some of the most violent times on Earth. And although I love David Gerald for his liberal ideology, I don't share it. I just don't, I don't see it. I don't, I mean, do I try to negotiate for peace? Every day I do. Every day I try to talk these kids down and say, hey, let's talk about, you know, yourself. Tell me about your interests or your hobbies. But they, they kind of have a one-track mind. It's all more geared towards violence. Because, viol let's face it, violence sells. So back to da David Gerald. He, uh, postulates that the uh, Star Trek games are all about wiping out Klingons, but if you go back to the original series, more often than not, Kirk tried to uh, create peaceful terms and truces. And that's true to a certain extent, but if you really look at it, it was 50-50. Kirk was just as likely to punch out a Klingon as he was to uh, try to make peace with him. As he said himself in Star Trek VI, he said he had never forgiven the Klingons for killing his son. So in his heart was a lot of uh, disregard towards the Klingons. I won't use hate. That's too strong a word. But his uh, feelings towards the Klingon were always ambivalent. He both hated and loved them. But was he ever going to, you know, try to really make a peace with them? Probably not. His his idea was when the uh, Klingon homeworld blew up and Spock said the Klingons are dying, Kirk said, let them die. 
And that's a lot of people's response to things. Hey, if if you are my enemy, it serves me no purpose for you to be here. Go ahead and disappear. So again, David Gerald, his uh, point of view in this article is that we should always strive towards peaceful endeavors. We should try to negotiate for peace. We should have a truce and get along. How's that working out with China? How's that working out with Russia and Ukraine? How's that working out for the Middle East? Not too good, right? I mean, the Middle East so much hate us. They flew uh, planes into our Twin Towers and destroyed them. How's that for a peaceful uh, endeavor? And, of course, we responded in kind, didn't we? We didn't go over there and try to make a peace with the uh, Muslims. No, we did not. So David Gerald, wonderful man, is a great thinker. I think the world of him. I love his articles, but I don't always agree with him. He's a man of strong opinions, and I don't always agree with him. I would say I'm conservative by nature. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm more, my ideals are conservative in nature in that, you know, you work hard, you do your work, you obey the laws, you uh, pay your taxes, you try to get along with others. I follow the golden rule to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But I work for a company and they have the platinum rule and it's called do unto others as you would like to have done to you. In other words, what they're trying to say is go above and beyond so that if you treat someone with respect and kindness, hopefully you'll get it back. Unfortunately, in my field of work, I get cursed out way too often so that that, again, is another naive ideology. They say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And Jesus said, if someone slapped you, turn the other cheek. Well, and it's a wonderful thought, and I agree with Jesus, but any sign of weakness in my work, and they will take you out, and then you don't have a job anymore. So you have to meet strength. Well, you're allowed to meet force with force. In other words, you punch me in the face, I'm allowed to punch you in the face. You pull a gun on me, I can pull a gun on you. That's my work ethic. That's what I'm told in my workplace. And unfortunately, that's the world I think we live in. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to get castigated for it. You can't let anybody make you their little bitch. You have to respond in force and say, you know, you have to understand there are consequences to your actions. Whatever you do to me, it's going to happen to you. Let's go back to the Star Trek game. Why are we destroying Klingons? Well, they started it. They they blew up our uh, outposts. They took out base set A, Alpha, whatever. So you're going to let the Klingons get away with that? Are you? Eye for an eye. The Klingons have to be made to understand that what you do has consequences. David Gerald, I enjoyed the article. I didn't share his point of view, but it was certainly... Uh, an interesting article to read. So I just wrote a review of this book, Star Trek Essays Exploring the Final Frontier. It's a collection of essays about Star Trek, edited by Amy Sturgis and Amy Strand. And you do know Amy Sturgis, right, baby? Amy Sturgis, believe it or not, she's legendary in local Lord of the Rings fandom, J.R.R. Tolkien fandom, because she established the Tolkien Smeal here in Nashville, Tennessee, years ago. So that's essentially an official Tolkien fan club in the area. And I've seen her at Tolkien events before, and I somehow the conversation never came up. She's an actual scholar on Tolkien. What's amazing is she's a Star Trek fan as well. Like, go figure. But there's cross-pollination with lots of fandoms, so it's not a far stretch. Obviously, if if I could enjoy both fandoms, there, there's people on the higher level of academia that can as well. Yeah, I think that's so neat that um, that she edited this Star Trek book, but, and, but she's she's also fans of other things. 
But this w- was an excellent book. Um, essays written by different people, all scholars who, who love Star Trek. And Amy Sturgis herself wrote one of the essays. And I, I just thought it was, it was a brilliant book. And it covers so many different things about Star Trek and, and different, uh, different shows too. There's, there's articles on, uh, The Next Generation, some stemming from the original series, DS9 and Voyager. Uh, mostly those and some of the, um, uh, book from some of the movies from the Kelvin universe, other Star Trek movies. Uh, so it's just a great book. Some of it, there's like a, an essay on, uh, the language in Darmok in the Darmok episode. And there's something on mythology, uh, in the original series. And there's even essays on other, on other fandom related things like the Star Trek novels and the Star Trek fanzines back in the seventies. Um, and John Jackson Miller, a known Star Trek novelist, wrote one of the essays in this. So it's, it's a really awesome book. And so I have the review out there on our blog, on Blogspot, where you can listen to our podcast. And I, and I also have blogs out there. And actually just scroll down further from, if you're listening directly from our podcast. I know some people listen on iTunes or Spotify, but if you go directly to our Blogspot, You'll see Kavor's review of, of this book. Yes, I highly recommend this book. Um, and it is available on Amazon. It's an excellent book. Let's talk about some Star Trek related activities that we're involved with since the recording of our previous episode. So lately we've been playing Star Trek Adventures. It's a role playing game by Modifius. Now we've been playing the FASA role playing game from the 80s. Yes. Which is a D10 system. Love. The FASA game. How have our FASA games been going along? The FASA game is good, yes. So we're doing... So for FASA, it's TOS era, because that's when the FASA game started. We're doing the the 1983 version. So we each have our own characters, and it's really cool. There's The aliens they have back then, it, it was more limited back then. But um, but it's, it's still a lot of fun. And based on the animated series, too. Right. So FASA is only based on original series, animated series, and the first movie initially. Right. So so we do we're doing those characters. Um, of course we made up our own characters and we've got we we're, we're all cadets on a ship and so it's like it's like our first cruise ever and so we have different adventures and it's just a lot of fun. So counter that to Star Trek adventures that we're playing now with a different group of people. So I'm the game master for the FASA adventures. Now I'm a player. For Star Trek adventures, we have a game master. His name is Kyle. It's the Deep Space Nine era, but we're on a ship. And that one's a lot of fun too. We're using, we're using characters that were already created for the game. We use D20 dice for this system. And of course for, for Star Trek adventures, they do make their own Star Trek dice as well that we mm-hmm. use. Different feel. It's a different feel. Uh, they're both different. They're both awesome in their own ways. I'd say Star Trek Adventures is a faster pace. Yeah, it is, and it seems to have more. Is, is it more conflict, more fighting? But it's still fun. I mean, we're just we're just going through, and and you just do an adventure. And I think the best part of it is the social aspect. Because we do real-life role-playing gaming. Yeah, we're doing it in person. (laughs) (laughs) Real life. Yes. (laughs) You love making fun of me for that. I don't consider online real life. If you haven't dipped your toes into role-playing gaming, 
highly recommend. It's kind of harder to find the Fossa stuff. We're old school fans. We love the collectability of it. But Modifius Star Trek Adventures role playing game is currently available at most gaming stores. So check it out. We definitely recommend if you love Star Trek and you love immersion into the world. See if it suits your fancy. We're going to put a link in our show notes. If you're thinking about getting involved in the Star Trek Adventures game that's currently available, check out this YouTube channel, The Final Frontiersman. Our friend Jeremy is one of the co-hosts there. I mean, it's so entertaining. it's, It's a fantastic exploration into this game. And we highly recommend our listeners who are thinking about modern day role playing, at least consider this option because there are online versions that you can play as well as what real life versions. <laughs> <laughs> and what have we been doing with members of the USS Athena, our local fan club here in Nashville, Tennessee? Well, for one thing, we had a bowling night. And of course, you know, there is a bowling alley on the Enterprise. That's been established <laughs> on screen and in the blueprints. So, and we had a, a huge turnout for the bowling night. And so we, we were in two teams. There was the Wesley Crushers and the Lower Decks. Yes. It's amazing how Phantom has spawned. People just embrace the idea of that there is Lower Decks. Well, because it was a, it's a series now, but it was also a great episode of TNG. But the series has made people think, yeah, you know what? Not being a high-ranking officer is a pretty cool thing. <laughs> it can be, yeah. yeah. You, can, you can still do stuff. And, of course, the Wesley Crushers was a name from Big Bang Theory. It was yes. A, yeah, Sheldon's bowling team. <laughs> uh, we went to Eastside Bowl, which was – it's a very – almost a futuristic bowling alley. How would you describe it? They, they had, um, yeah, an atmosphere that was sort of different. And the and the they had electronic bowling, so so that you see your score on the screen, and they also had graphics there. And when you when you have a gutter ball, there was a graphic of a person dancing, <laughs> which didn't make any sense. <laughs> but when you roll the ball down the lane, they have like these laser lights that follow the ball. Like it's not an old it's not an old fashioned bowling lane. Like everything was futuristic about it, and we kind of imagined this is how it would be on the Enterprise. Also, we just had our USS Athena Star Party. Well, the Star Party is sponsored by the Bernard Seifert Astronomical Society, which is the Nashville chapter of the Astronomical Society, and Nayar and I are members of that. And look, no matter where you are in the United States, look up Star Party. Do a search for Star Party near me. If you're thinking about getting involved in viewing the stars and planets, astronomy in general, there's probably an organization near you to join. It is so much fun. You learn so much. So we went into this open field, red lights everywhere to keep to keep our uh, night vision at an appropriate level. And we met up with a bunch of people with some amazing telescopes with fellow members of the USS Athena. So paint a picture. What's a star party and what's it like? You go there at night and they have and the um the, the astronomers, the other members of the astronomical society bring their telescopes. And and these these people are also expert astronomers. So they set up their telescopes and you can you look through it and and they tell you what you're looking at and they can even explain it, tell you some things about it. And so we, we walked around to the, like, different people had different telescopes. Set up. And and their telescopes are different because they bring them from their home, so each one has um, a different size and strength and, and everything. And and plus, some of them are also taking pictures. They're, they bring their computer system to take pictures of the stars and everything. 
Oh, we love it. We love a great organization to be part of. Now, not only do we do all these other things, but we are also members of Starfleet International. It's a different Star Trek fan club. What happened this year with regards to your achievements, especially within Starfleet International? In Starfleet International, uh, for Region 2, which is our region, it's the Southeast, I actually got Officer of the Year. I was so proud of you. But it doesn't surprise me. Well, it, it was an honor, and I appreciated it. So we, we also, there was um, a Region 2 Summit, which was online, and so we watched that and spoke a little to the people. That was when they announced the awards. Mm-hmm. And then, and then after that, about a month later, there was the Starfleet International Virtual um, International Conference. That, so that was also online, and we watched some of that. So they they had different things in their in their international conference. One of the things we watched was um, some of the people behind Star Trek Adventures. So that was pretty cool to watch them and their and have them talk about that. Yeah, because it's a very active community. The Star Trek Adventures game. It's one of the best things about being a Star Trek fan is being part. Of all these Star Trek fan clubs. Odyssey, video game fun, computer keyboard challenge, the entrance to an alternate world of fire breathing dragons, hard hitting sluggers, arcade wizards, outer space wizards. More than 40 games in all. Odyssey, the excitement of a game, the mind of a computer. All for the price of an ordinary video game. Odyssey. Starlog Magazine, issue number 68. Cover date, March 1983. Communications, letters to Starlog. Star Trekkers. This is from Diane Lee Barron of Southbury, Connecticut. She says, David Gerald has hit the mark again. His soaring column in Starlog 65 was pure brilliance. Trekkers have been bloated with self-righteousness. It's the old, only a trekker can understand what trek is all about, syndrome. Go to any convention and you'll, you'll overhear a multitude of heated battles about the Star Trek movies. Pros, cons, mistakes, discontinuity, script, special effects, anything at all comes under their privileged domain. (laughs) (laughs) This is us. This is us. (laughs) Yeah. I guess that on the seventh day when God was supposed to be resting, he he cheated a little and created the all-knowing trekker. (laughs) Boy, I can't believe this person. David Gerald had me laughing till I cried when he offered trekkers the option of Whoever makes the best Star Trek picture gets to make another one. The loser gets killed. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this oversimplified dr- the dramatic solution to the belly yaking startled me into realizing the irrelevance of the Trekkers debates. I say, who cares? Go to the movies, Trekkers. Enjoy, relax, give it a break. Can you imagine that? Oh, I think that's not a real fan if, if she's going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it it it's the 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 debate between what is real Trek and not real Trek, who are good Trek writers and not good Trek writers, we can see has been going on for decades. Yeah, so it's not just um, the debate now with new Trek, but it you know, but things have been said years ago still. Mm-hmm. 
But to counter that argument, a letter from DeBert Harris out of Oakland, California, says, I'm confused about David Gerald's column in number 65. Exactly what is his point? Is he saying that no fan should air his or her opinion of Star Trek? If so, that is a very strange statement coming from someone who airs his opinion of Star Trek every month in Starlog. Is his point perhaps that no one should have an opinion on Trek because the opinion means nothing? An obviously faulty statement, for without a great output of opinions by fans of Trek, there would not be any Trek conventions. Trek would not be one of the most popular television shows in syndication. There would have been no movies, and there would not be a soaring column. Mr. Gerald's, where no fan has gone before, impressed me as a bitter statement against Star Trek fans in general. If he is so disgusted with the Star Trek fan scene and all that goes with it, then he should stop participating in it. No one is forcing him to be part of it. Well, that's an interesting viewpoint, too. So, so yeah, I mean, um, people can express their opinions. Why not? We have we have a right to our opinions, and so, and so, yeah. This person seems to not care if, like, if you agree, if you like Star Trek or don't like it, but we should be able to express our opinions. David Gerald's whole column is an opinion column. It is. Exactly. Is he the only one that has a right to express <laughs> opinions? Right. Exactly. I th- I think David Gerald, what what his article was was mostly it was about the people who complain and just saying like, stop complaining. But I think it's you know if you can. If you can back up your argument with something, then then at least there's something there to say. It's a valid point. I mean, we when we criticize Trek, there's a difference between criticizing and bashing. That's why any good company has a quality control department. They actually hire people to say, what's wrong with this product so we can make it better in the future? And that that's what we say anytime we say something is wrong with new Trek. We don't just say something is wrong. But we say, how could it be better? How could it tie in with established canon? I mean, it's one of the reasons why we love the Star Trek books and comics so much, because those writers really try to tie everything in with established canon. Does that make us Star Trek haters if we don't just lap up every single thing that's on the screen? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we need to, to say what we don't like, um, and hopefully the, the showmakers will listen and and correct that. I mean, they, you know, they they should be listening to us. I don't know if they are, but I mean, but I mean, but the, you, you know, like they're not going to make any money if they don't give the fans what they what they want. Yeah, interesting take on the controversy that has been going on for decades on what is Trek and what is not. Star Trek Two breaks video records. Paramount Home Video set new records with its videocassette version of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan when it was shipped in early November. Priced at an exceptionally low $39.95, orders have surpassed 110,000 copies, a new industry record. A month after release, Paramount reported that stores were selling 1,000 copies a day. you got to figure, if you were to do a modern-day conversion... Of what $40 was, right? That was the, the list price. That was considered a low price for videotapes yeah. of that time. But a lot because of vi- they, they came out at $100. $100 Roughly, yeah. they were $100 in 1983. We did not have a VCR in 1983. Right. I didn't either at that time. That was time. considered rich people had VCRs in 1983. So if you were to do the conversion, that would be about $120 in today's money. And that's considered a bargain to buy a VHS or beta tape. 
back in 1983. Right, yeah. Think about how fast that came out too. That's pretty amazing, right? Uh, I, I, it's one of those things when people talk about how expensive things are and how much everything has inflated in price. We have to take a step back and analyze. Not everything really is is some things have raised, risen in price, but some things have actually dropped down so drastically that it's 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 a bargain. I mean, can you imagine now if a DVD came out at forty dollars, people would lose their minds. They're not paying forty dollars for it; they want it for twenty, twenty-five. Right? Is that the going rate roughly for a DVD in that range? So just think about that. People were paying a hundred and twenty dollars, and it broke records back in nineteen eighty-three because of that rock bottom price. But but you still have to think it was it was rich people because it was still oh, only, yes. only people who had VCRs. Yes, yeah, it was a different segment of society. The article goes on to say the cassette's pricing was to test to see if sales would dramatically improve, and according to Variety, sales are stronger, but not that much stronger. Other manufacturers have said they have no plans for competitive pricing as of yet. MCA will, however, release Steven Spielberg's telefilm, Duel, at a $39.95 cassette. Well, that actually wasn't a big hit because I don't remember seeing that. No, I don't remember that either. <laughs> On the video disc front, Star Trek II will join Star Wars as one of the best sellers in what is still considered to be a very small marketplace. So, yeah, video cassettes would would start to boom later. But, yeah, at this time, I mean, yeah, because when I was reading that, I was thinking 110 copies isn't really much. 110,000, I mean, but, it, but, yeah, so back then it was a lot. Well, the old Klingon proverb, which tells us revenge is a dish that's best served cold... It's very cold in our basements. And humid. It's summertime. Say hello to three men who don't believe in the no-win scenario. Max Overnighter, Lou Melagrana, and Dr. Durant, also known as Rich Hurley. Well, so what's the topic tonight? We're going to talk about Harv Bennett. Isn't Harv Bennett? He was, he, was the, he was the producer of uh, he oh, produced producer. Um, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which in my opinion is the best of the Star Trek films. I think it was Nicholas Meyer was the director of, of Star Trek too. But yeah, the, right. the article was was kind of an overview of Harv Bennett's career. He really came from TV, and it was kind of interesting to see some of the programs he was involved in uh, shepherding and that he worked on back in the day. Of course, there's the Mod Squad, excellent show. I barely remember it. But I remember watching it with my dad. It was an excellent show. Oh yeah, it was a big show back then. It was it was the first, what like youth oriented cop show, right? He, Are they was, detectives or what was their deal? I couldn't. All I remember is them running through like some like was it like under a bridge or some crap, and they're like running <laughs> through the water and the street. I don't know. That's all I remember as a kid, and I've never watched it since. But I remember it was a good show. Well, well, it was it was yeah. The Mod Squad was actually uh, we're. Where Harv got his uh, his first Emmy, too, by the way, was yes. for the Mod Squad. Yep, and then he did uh, Rich Man, Poor Man, which was like one of the first miniseries for television. Do you remember that? They used to, in my market, they used to repeat that on syndication all the time. And it was it was uh, Nick Nolte, and I'm trying to think of who the other guy was now. Um, never saw it, but my mother talked about it all the time. She must have watched it every time it came on. Oh yeah, I get, I get that mixed huge. up with other shows like The Thorn Birds or something. She's talking about that as well. So, <laughs> and then well, well and be, go ahead. Well, Jack. I know what you're. I know where you're going, but 
But before before Rich Man Poor Man, he also did uh, The Invisible Man. Yes, nineteen seventy five. There we go. Which was funny. Like now, there were always there were a few toys out for that when I was a kid. Like I think a game and maybe some books. And it was David McCallum from The Man right. from Uncle. And I never knew what it was. I've never seen an episode of that show. I always thought it was like, I go, what's this? I go, Claude Rains is the Invisible Man. What the heck is this show? Have you ever seen an episode of it? I have not. Never. Nope. Yeah. I, I came across that and, and uh, something I know that that uh, we've also passed up. But, you know, Hart Bennett was talking about how he's been so long in, in uh, the entertainment industry because he actually started in radio. 1941. He was, uh, was a kid, five right? years. Uh, as, yeah, five years well, on the quiz. Yeah, he was a kid. Yeah. Wow. That's that's right up your alley, Max. You're the big radio guy. I am, and and oddly enough, I uh, Quiz Kids was not a program that I was familiar with, but uh, I'll have to I'll have to check it out. I mean, the only kind of quiz show programs that I I remember from radio was uh, the one with Groucho Marx. Yeah, you bet your life. You bet your life. What's what's the what's the most infamous joke from that? Do you know? I I remember the clock came down the TV show. Well, yeah, he's 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 introducing a woman, and you know, he chats it up with the contestants at the beginning of every episode. And this woman, he talks to her, and she's got like seventeen kids. Oh, he's like like, seventeen. He's like, and she's like, yes, well, I love children. He's like. I love cigars, but every once in a while, I take it out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny watching him on TV. Not to get up, but seeing him with a real mustache versus the the the, the, the grease paint grease mustache. Paint, yeah, yeah, that was always odd. Wow. But, but then, of course, Harv went on to produce two of the classic, at least in in our small universe, growing up in the seventies. The Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman. Any kid of our generation loved. Yep, The Six Million Dollar Man and the follow-up to that. The Bionic Woman, basically, who does everything the Bionic Man does, except for she does it with boobs. And she can hear. (laughs) She can hear Bionic, which any regular woman could do anyway. She didn't need Bionics to hear everything you're saying. I always liked the uh, Bionic Woman more, honestly. I think the, sh- the episodes were more engaging and exciting growing up watching that as opposed to the Six yeah, Million Dollar Man. she was a female. Yeah, if you go back and watch it now, you're kind of like, oh, like the Six Million Dollar Man doesn't do very much except for the episodes we all remember, like the Bigfoot episode or the Venus episode, Space yeah. Probe and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the other episodes are more like just him going around and every once in a while jumping over a wall or something like that, you know? I did like the beginning of that show better, though. The beginning of that show, the oh, yeah. introduction was fantastic. That really, like, just pumped you up for the show starting. It was like, hey, I'm going to jump over this wall in slow motion. <laughs> it's like, all right. And then uh, the other one, I, I another one I never, I, I don't remember, uh, Gemini Man. Do you remember that one? That Almost sounds 1976 like Gemini. Yeah. The the name I remember, I don't think I ever saw it. I think that's when we decided we were going off to Italy that year. We were out, but I do remember and probably saw it in a magazine or something. To be honest with you, I don't remember seeing that at all. Yeah, well, and it, I think that was yeah 1976. It seems to be like it was similar to wow, a man who has a watch that makes him invisible when pressed. 
He can only remain visible for invisible for 15 minutes or else he will stay invisible forever. So that's sort of a combination of <laughs> the Invisible Man series that he, he really liked people being invisible, I guess, because he was doing a lot of stuff with invisibility. What if the watch ran out of batteries? You're stuck. The batteries are dead. He's stuck as invisible. I guess so. Was it, was it a self-winder? <laughs> that would be tough. So in the, in the Star Trek Star Trek Two, The Wrath of Khan. Khan! <laughs> yes! Bill Shatner, and then, of course, Captain Kirk. Rich, there we have it, it yeah. Better. I want to hear Rich do it again. It was better. <laughs> You have to. It's it's like a drinking game. Anytime that you scream, Khan. Yes. I mean that 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 is to me. It's the best of the Star Trek films, and and I think that, like that the was motion the picture didn't do it for you. Well, the complaint <laughs> about the motion picture was they tried to make it too epic, but it was all about the effects. And and I guess in retrospect, people have gone back and visited it and enjoyed it. I haven't, so I, I don't know whether it's you know if I watch it again, whether it'll stand up. But I can always watch Wrath of Khan, and I think it's because they got, because of what Harve Bennett talks about in this article to a certain degree, where he says that what him and Nicholas Meyer and the writers were doing was number one, they turned Starfleet into the Navy, that that Kirk was sort of Horatio Hornblower and made it more of a military movie, and the film itself is yeah. sort of like a submarine chase with the sure. you know Khan and Kirk chasing each other around in the ships in space. And that's what really made it exciting to a certain degree, at least for me. I mean, I, I enjoyed it a lot because of that. And the they, they, they sort of pulled they sort of pulled the rug out from under Gene Roddenberry on this. His name was on it, of course, but he wasn't as heavily involved in it as he was the others. And I think they probably brought Harv in because of his background on television and his success with sort of sci-fi type properties a la... Right you know, $6 million man and the bionic woman. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, he was also just coming off of the uh, the woman called Golda. You know, so he was he was staying pretty, he was staying pretty busy. That was a and, uh, very busy dude. But the one thing that, uh, the one thing I thought, um, because I think he had have known that Star Trek, uh, the motion picture really, really wasn't that well received. So they wanted to kind of do something a little bit different you know, to make it, you know, more engaging, you know, it's, I think he was, he was kind of talking about that and the, and the, the, what was supposed to be the surprise, of course, the, uh, was kind of leaked out about the, right. Yes. The The death death of Spock. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting that way back then that that information had leaked because there was no internet, so to speak back then. No. And, what would you know, be the leak for that radio? Yeah, like, like, how did it get out? Because you, you, as a, you know, I guess somewhere, some you know, the, the rumor is is that because there was no rumor that that Darth Vader was going to be Luke's father when I went to see Empire Strikes Back, other than people That's, that went and saw it and let you know, people that saw it would say that. Yeah, but right, the movie was already released then. Right by then, you know, exactly. not not in the making of, you know. So how would that happen? You know, it's kind of that is kind of it is kind of weird. At that point. And what I thought was kind of interesting that they talked about was how when they did this, they initially had written it kind of like Psycho, where Spock was going to die like a third of the way into the movie to make it like a really big shock. Like, you know, not like he dies at the end of the movie right now, but if he was to die like 
three quarters of the way and you're like, holy crap, one of the major characters just died in the movie. And it like throw right. people for a loop, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. And that would have been, it would have been brilliant and, and seriously something that would have got people talking, you right. know, but, but yeah, I mean, it kind of becomes different, you know, once it, you know, it's all leaked before the movie thing comes out, you know, it kind of takes that, that uh, surprise. Cause it wasn't like it led up to it. Like he was sick you know, it was just boom. You know, he made a made a choice, and that was a part of the movie that I, I remember. You know, of course, you know him with his hand on the glass. You know, right. the... well, didn't they say to try and take people's, try and confuse people so they didn't know the the big piece? As they said, they said they were going to film different endings, and then they don't really know which one it was going to be. They were going to pick one and not tell anyone, kind of thing, until the movie. You know, you right? The movie right. came out, yeah. and trying to throw of... people off because they just pulled this big piece out again no internet not quite sure how they did that but right and harv said in, in that that he said he sort of felt that was disingenuous and that he had to go with the original ending they had but the compromise they did was the opening scene which is the kobayashi maru the the no win scenario where wow. the whole film opens up and they kill off the entire crew of the starfleet like ahura gets right. killed and and then so that the audience is like what's going on everyone is dying and we just and then, started the movie. Yeah, and then Kirk comes in, and and he had actually said that that was initially an idea for the film too, was to kill off the whole crew except for Kirk, because they, you know, the, I think the first film had done so poorly that they they really really were going to make Khan, I think, a TV movie or at least made yeah. for TV, and then it did get bumped up to become a, a theatrical feature, but. You know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that Kirk was the the money maker for Star Trek, and they wouldn't have any problem killing off everybody else. And it was kind of neat the way they threw in this sort of red herring at the beginning, where the whole crew dies, and then Kirk comes out, and you find out it's a training scenario, and that was what the whole thing right. was about. It's smart. And then people might be like, "Oh, that's so Spock didn't die; it was just this." And then they throw him a yes. loop, and he does die at the end. You and know? they get. Smacked in the face on the way on the way into the movie. That's it, very much so. Yeah, I really enjoyed the part two where he talks about playing uh, Amazing Grace on the bagpipe at at Spock's funeral, where right. he he had had a friend that had passed away of cancer at an early age. He went to his funeral, and during the funeral, uh, a guy with a bagpipe alone bagpiper wanders down the aisle playing that song, and he was, he brought him to tears. And he's like, "Well, how can I work that into the movie?" And he's like. Scotty, Scotty's there, and Scotty's Scottish, and like, and he said, still to this day, people kind of get it confused. At least back then, what he was talking about that they don't understand that Scotty is playing the bagpipes. It's not part of the score. Like some people just thought, oh, it's just the overscore playing, but it's it was Scotty playing. The, yeah, like sort of his farewell to Spock as as he's launched off in into outer space. Yeah, and they, they also he also gave uh, a lot of credit to that fight that that funeral scene, you know, to William Shatner that he, he carried that, you know, cause they were talking about were they going to have him cry? And they said, no, he's kind of like uh, emotionally spent, basically exhausted, you know? And, right. And he does give that bit where he, he, he breaks for a second, you know? Right. Well, one thing yeah. I did want to mention about Harv Bennett and another show that he did produce was Salvage One, a show that hardly anybody has ever heard of, but I never watched heard of it. it. Salvage One was with Andy Griffith, and he lived in a junkyard, and he, he built a spaceship out of all the stuff in his junkyard, and they would fly the spaceship around, 
to like he wanted to go to the moon and collect all the junk that was on the moon to salvage it and bring it back and sell it in his scrapyard. Wasn't that but, fair about space nuts? Because that... Allah kind of liked that. It was a fantastic show, I mean, a funny little show that very few people remember. But I remember watching it when it was on as a, a kid because I would gravitate towards anything sci-fi or, or bizarre. I gotta go like find that. that on YouTube or whatever. Yeah, me too. I don't remember that. Sounds good. Well, guys, this was a lot of fun. As always, it's good to get get and just sit and shoot the breeze with you guys. You I'm Max Overnighter. Did you say shoot the breeze or shit the breeze? Shoot the breeze. Oh, okay. Shoot the you breeze, Lou. Shoot the breeze. God damn mind out of the fire, boy. Ship. Ship. Like the Enterprise. <laughs> well... It is time for three men whose souls are the most human you'll probably ever meet. Lou Melagrana, Max Overnighter, and myself, Dr. Durant, also known as Rich Hurley. You can find me on YouTube where I have a channel, Dr. Durant Sanctum, where we talk about toys, comics, movies, what have you. And you can find Max uh, at multiple hours of the day on Migo-like. <laughs> where he does several lives showcasing things from his fine collection. Max has one of the foremost Batman collections in the world. And now he has fallen into the rabbit hole of Big Jim. And the galaxy. And Lou Melagrana, you can find him at your local meatball stand. (laughs) I thought you were going to say sausage stand. I really did. (laughs) Woo! Wait, let's do one more con before we go. One more. Yes, I love that. That's so fantastic. That's excellent acting right there. By yeah, I want to watch that again now. Now, yeah, now you want, I know we do these things, and then you want to go out and watch all the movies and stuff we talk about. As always, we're going to finish up this episode. We're talking about one of the advertisements that's found in Starlog magazine. This is a half-page ad for Star Trek, the role-playing game. We spoke about it briefly in the middle of this episode. Let's find out what this box contains. Join the adventures on the Starship Enterprise with this complete role-playing game. You can play the roles of your favorite Enterprise crew members, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, or generate a new Starfleet character who can be used on any ship or for any mission. All the materials needed to begin play are included in the basic boxed set. The basic rule book contains all of the rules required for play, character generation, skill descriptions, man-to-man combat, detailed equipment lists, a new starship command system, and planetary civilization and animal creation are included. A second book contains introductory adventures, including involving tribbles. Also included in the basic set are counters, reference sheets, two 20-sided dice, and detailed deck plans of the Enterprise and Klingon D7 battlecruiser. What's the prices that are listed there? So the role-playing game is $25, the Enterprise deck plans, nine sheets, is $15, the Klingon D7 deck plans, six sheets, is twelve fifty, and shipping is, a, is only a dollar for all that? <laughs>
I mean, shipping is where they get you these days. So, I mean, so, so for that, so that basic set that was twenty five dollars. That's seventy five dollars in today's money. Like, there's yeah. no role playing games that are seventy five dollars. They'd never sell it. Well, I mean, role playing games are. It is kind of expensive. I mean, they yeah, are even yeah. today. They are. They're, but... they're they're mostly now books. They don't come in box sets. Right. But that's yeah. one of the interesting things. And it says it comes with two d twenty dice. If you look at those d twenty dice, they're actually. They have 20 sides, but it's 10 twice. So you roll 10s with a 20-sided die, which is – it's still a D10 system, but they've doubled up on the dice. And we still have some in the collection. I like rolling real D10s, not the doubled-up D20-style D10s. What do you think about the advertisement in general? Do you think that would capture your attention as a gaming fan in 1983, you got to figure this is the area of Dungeons and Dragons. Everyone was trying to jump in on the RPG craze. I mean, it's I don't the the picture doesn't really look as good. The it's artwork of that first edition wasn't very good. But I mean, but the description of it sounds good. Yeah, and you you can actually play the main characters because we're not in our mm-hmm. game. Here's one of the challenges that I have with playing the main characters is that it's and and I faced this challenge when I used to play the Marvel role playing game in the 80s is that if you know the lore to me it kind of it it kind of screws things up you don't have as much flexibility and also if your character dies well if i'm playing spock i want spock to die from from (laughs) from from uh you know falling off a cliff or being phased out of existence but you're saying the characters like like because you know exactly what spock would do and say that's kind of different and i think it's limiting yes yeah so when it came to Games that had a IP associated with it, whether it be Indiana Jones, whether it be James Bond, I prefer playing a totally unique character. I can see that, yeah. And so this has like the um, so it has the the deck plans of the ships. I mean, we we still like to refer to that. I mean, those are cool. We've been using those in our games. Not ju- well, not just for the game, but I mean, but just to look at. Oh, in absolutely. Yeah. The beautiful thing is about Foss is the world building that that they explored. Just building on the lore and expanding on it further. Yeah, it is great just to read the books just for fun, to to read their description of the Federation and, and of the different aliens and things like that. And, of course, and this is the FASA game. I mean, we, we refer to it as FASA. I mean, like, you don't refer to Star Trek Adventures as Modifius, you know. But Good observation. You're right. Yeah. 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 Thanks for listening to us. Don't forget to subscribe to our show and give us positive feedback on your podcast app. Your five-star reviews are always welcome. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. All I have to do is push this little red button. Tell nobody but a little friend's worth it.